Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your name is glorious. And you sent your son to glorify your name. So it is his name that we exalt for your glory, like Philippians 2 tells us. So we want to magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ and exalt the goodness and glory of Jesus and the gospel that saves us. And we pray that our life would be a continual reflection of you as you transform us into Christ-likeness. It is a uh, very difficult path to walk, Lord, to walk alongside Christ, to think about the life he lived and how hard it was, that it was the hardest life ever lived. Not because the sufferings were so great and the, and, and the death was so painful, but because he endured every temptation to its completion. We want to do the same, but we can't do it alone. And so you've given us not only yourself in your spirit who dwells within and, and creates obedience in us, but you've also ordained that we would do it together as a body, as a family that love each other and learn to grow together. So may this time in your word do the very thing you promise it will do and not return back to you empty, but accomplish the things you send it to accomplish, which would be our sanctification. We love you, Jesus. Father, we love you and pray that your spirit would lead and guide now in this time in your word, that you would pull from your text truth and speak it out of me, that it would land on open and ready hearts and minds for transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is our second week talking about widows. Uh, Christian and I, weeks, months ago, really, were looking ahead to this text. And we were like, I was like, do you want to preach on widows? He's like, no. Do you want to preach on widows? He's like, no. <laughs> it's such a practical thing. It's so, it's so unlike the most of, of Paul's letters. It, it's so logistic. You know, detailed guidelines and specifics about a very, very specific group of people in the church that today, because the church is so widespread all over the globe, there are probably thousands upon thousands of churches that have zero widows in their congregations, making a text like this, which is 14 verses long, making a text like this seem almost irrelevant like, why, why not just skip it? We don't have widows in our church. Let's just skip it kind of mentality. But it's in here for a reason. And there are very practical and logistical details in these texts about widows that is important for the church to know and understand so that we know how to operate and serve and care for women who have lost their husbands. But... 
Underneath this is a principle and a reality and a truth, a foundational truth that Paul has been preaching or writing about this entire letter. In fact, he writes about it not only in this letter, but in all the letters. And so what we'll see today is some practical realities about what it means to serve and care for widows, but also what we'll see is this underlying principle. And this important principle that underlies all of this is this concept that ministry to widows is just one of the many ways in which the church can get caught up in sin. So this idea that serving people, that creating a ministry, though blessed and wonderful and glorious and good, is on the flip side of the good, the good part of it is it's just another opportunity for sin to be revealed and for, for people to be led into sin. Any ministry we have or create or that's new becomes not only a blessing but an opportunity for sin. And therefore, we must navigate those ministries in the most biblical way possible so to avoid sin creeping into the church. And underneath this is this fundamentally important truth. It is the truth that the body of Christ must be holy. So underneath this is this fundamental truth. As we talk about widows, don't forget that what we're really establishing, what Paul's really establishing is what he's been preaching his whole letter, which is that the church has a responsibility to preserve the purity of the gospel through the holiness of the church. And so Paul gives guidelines and stipulations and qualifications and, 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 and uh, requirements for how the church operates with widows and how they care for widows so that the church avoids sin and can maintain purity to reveal the gospel, purity for the holiness of the church. Because there's another important principle at work here, which is this idea that, and this happens to a lot of Christians, I think it happens to all of us at some point, is we do things that we think are good and biblical, but we do them in an unbiblical way. For example, widows is a great, a great opportunity to kind of reveal this. You can love somebody and then say, I'm going to care for this person because I love them. And how do you justify that biblically? Well, that's easy to justify loving others and caring for them and, and, and serving them because you love them, that's a biblical principle that we are commanded. That's the second greatest principle, Jesus said, love others. So it's very easy to say, well, I'm just going to go serve and, and, and take care of this person because I love them, but then do it without following the biblical guidelines. And now your love is not going to be portrayed properly, nor is your love going, going to be bordered and restrained by the word of God. And it just opens us up to sin. So what we want to avoid is just having love and caring and compassion and all these Christ-like characteristics and just throwing them around the church wildly without any consideration for how God determines we should operate with those characteristics. So we're in verse 9 through 10. And Paul writes this, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has 
brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So Paul's bringing up this enrollment that we talked. I mentioned it last week and said I would explain a little more this week. So there's this enrollment, and we're not told much about it other than the word enrollment literally means a set list. And so <clears throat> there is a list of widows who have to qualify to be enrolled in this list. And so Paul brings up this enrollment for widows. Uh, and the list, if you're on the list, if you're a widow that makes the enrollment, that qualifies to be enrolled and you make the list, they are to receive full care from the church. Now, what full care actually looks like depends on a lot of factors, and that is not clarified in this text, so I'd rather not speculate on something Scripture doesn't clearly communicate. However, it does seem easy to say that at the least, the widows who qualify for enrollment would have their you know, physical and earthly needs taken care of, such as housing and food and clothing and things like that, in addition to the spiritual care that all believers should receive from, from the church and from each other. So, that would be the sense of full care. So in verses 9 through 10, in order to qualify this, for this list, there are, there are three requirements or three qualifications for enrollment in widow care. One, she can't be less than 60 years. She has to be at least 60 years of age. Two, she has to be the wife of one husband. And three, she has to have a reputation for good works. I get all that from verses 9 through 10. So we'll just go through these three quick. In the first qualification, which is that she must be at least 60 years of age, Paul is not teaching that the widows under 60 should you know, not be supported by the church at all. Like, oh, you're 59? Get out of here, lady. Like, that's not, that's not the attitude that Paul is conveying. Uh, but, but what he is saying is that they should not be on the enrollment or, or be enrolled in the list of widows that should receive full support from the church because... Widows under 60, so you got to understand, we're operating, Paul's operating in a first century mind frame. He has a historical, con- he has a context that we just don't have. And there are things he perceives and knows and understands that, that, that go unspoken, that we don't see and are not unspoken to us and we have to discover. And one of the things is that, that's different about the first century and today is how, how, the, how the culture views women. Now, in our world today, different cultures in the world today view women very differently. In some cultures today, women are extremely suppressed, like in a very unloving and unhealthy and unfair and non-justified and unbiblical way, women are suppressed. And then in other cultures, it's the exact opposite. Women are not restrained in any way, shape, or form and are free to do whatever they want. And in those cultures, both of them are extreme versions and uh, there are very few cultures where there's a healthy balance. And the one place where that balance for womanhood should be its healthiest is the culture within the church. And so Paul's thinking about a 60-year-old woman in the first century, which is so different from today. The, the life expectancy in the first century is almost half of what it is today. 
It was just, you know, modern medicine, technology. I mean, the life expectancy didn't truly rise to where it is today, but for the last maybe 100 or couple hundred years, I mean, for thousands of years after the first, over a thousand years after the first century, the life expectancy didn't really get that much better because medicine didn't really get that much better. Healthcare didn't get that much better. Technology didn't get that much better. It wasn't until recently that the life expectancy really started skyrocketing. And so you got to understand, a 40-year-old, in the first century is very different than a 40-year-old today. I mean, I still know men who look at me and go and call me a young man. I turned 41 on Friday. I don't, I, I feel young. I still feel young. Yeah. But some, you know, men call me a young, if this was the first century, I wouldn't be considered a young man at all. Um, and so we got to understand the, the context of even just their perception of age. So a 60-year-old woman, you know, I would look at a 60-year-old woman today and say, you're not old. And in the first century, she'd be old. So very different context, very different culture. And because of that, Paul looks at these women who are under 60 and says they can do things that women over 60 really can't do in our culture. Um, widows under 60 can support themselves. They can work, and their type of work would be different than you see today. Um, but they can get married, and, and they would only need occasional support, while widows over 60 would be much more in need of full support. So all widows who are truly widows, we talked about what truly widows is last week, should still experience help from the church, but in various degrees depending on their situation and circumstances. So Paul's not saying, if you're under 60, you get no help. He's saying, well, we can help them occasionally, but they are set up for other opportunities, and we'll kind of discover what those opportunities are. And then Paul clarifies it, 60 and over, let's ensure that these widows are genuinely taken care of with the full support of the church. Now, the second qualification, which is that she must have been the wife of one husband, does not mean that she could have only been married once. Because then the young widows who biblically remarried due to the death of their first husband would later be unqualified for enrollment when they get older. So there's like the similarity between this phrase and the phrase in Chapter 3, verse 2, when he talks about the qualifications for elders, he uses the phrase husband of one wife. And here we've got this phrase, wife of one husband. And, and, and there's a similarity between them, yet they are different also, based mainly on, on the difference in context. And so I really could dive really deep into this comparison of these two phrases. I'm going to avoid that so I can address the larger meaning in the text, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds, but this does have importance to the way the church operates. So I do want to give a little clarification. So instead of this being a clarification on her involvement in one or more marriage covenants, it is more likely that Paul here, when he says the wife of one husband, is referring to her faithfulness and purity within her recent marriage with her husband who just died. Which is not what he means in chapter 3, verse 2. And this makes sense, although this would be included in the concept he reveals in chapter 3, verse 2. And this makes sense within the context because later in verse 15, Paul is going to refer to not giving Satan any occasion for slander and a widow who just lost her husband. So, so, so Paul's like, we, we have to make sure that this doesn't allow Satan to slip in, right? Well, imagine how easy it'd be for Satan to slip in if you've got a widow who just lost her husband a husband to whom she was unfaithful to. That would be a perfect occasion for slander. That'd be a perfect occasion for Satan. So think about it this way. The enrollment of these widows is predicated on the fact 
that they just lost their husband. And it is predicated on the fact that the widow was dependent on her husband, hence the need for the church to step in and she can be dependent on the church. So, so it's predicated on, on her uh, losing her husband and the fact that she was dependent on her husband. So if she was unfaithful to her husband, then she is living a double standard by having a husband she claims to need while in that marriage she acts as if she does not need him by being unfaithful. And then she loses him and goes to the church and says, I need help. In that case, the church has the right to say, you didn't need him when you were cheating on him, so you don't need our help now. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but it ensures, and again, what Paul's doing is, he, and we'll, we'll see this as this continues, is this, is this enrollment for widows is a filtration system to ensure that the right widows who are truly widows, faithful, godly women, are being taken care of primarily. Okay, this is, there's no clarification here on how to deal with sin if a widow does this and she should be treated like that. That isn't in this text. We have other texts that deal with how we de- that, that treat how we deal with sin and whatnot. But I know it sounds harsh, but this ensures that the widows that have been truly faithful to their husbands and truly faithful to Christ will receive the actual care that they genuinely need before the church spends its resources and time on those who are manipulative and deceptive and wicked and unfaithful and prove that in other relationships and therefore prove that in their relationship with Christ, that they might not even have a relationship with Christ. And also, actually, I don't want to go there. Third qualification, which is that she must, this is according to verses 9 through 10, and she must have a reputation for good works. And this third qualification and reputation for good works is expounded upon by Paul as he describes what the reputation would look like in the first century church. Keep in mind, first century context. So her reputation for good works would look something like this. Verse 10, she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work. Now, this list of good works is not a complete list of good works, nor is every aspect of this list required because if it was, then any widow who didn't have children is disqualified. And that's not the heartbeat of what Paul's getting at. The details about what a woman's good works are is only applied to those to whom these details are relevant. If a woman didn't have children, she, would st- she could still be enrolled if she met the other qualifications. But if that woman did have children, then the qualification is that she must have raised them according to God's word, which is, you know, or raised them faithfully, which is really what Paul means when he says brought up children. So these requirements are not a specific list, but rather a list that reveals the type of woman who should receive this care. If this list was specific, then widows today could be rejected care if they never washed the feet of the saints. That that act of service to wash feet was specifically culturally a first century thing. And it's never commanded of us today. It's not commanded for the church to perform today. We're not told we have to wash each other's feet. What is at the heartbeat of every time we see feet washing in scripture? It is 
humble and sacrificial service to others. So today we would not require that a widow has washed the feet of believers literally, but that she has displayed humble and sacrificial service to the body of Christ as evidence that she is a true widow. And further evidence that this list is not specific for the church, that the list itself is not a specific thing they need to do, but more rather a a, a kind of like an umbrella of the type of woman that qualifies, is that the end of this list of principles of a godly woman, Paul ends with this description of a woman who has a reputation for good works by saying she has devoted herself to every good work. Now, ask yourself this. Has any woman ever totally and completely and perfectly devoted herself to every good work? Of course not. So Paul's list here is more of a guideline for the kind of woman who has shown and proven her faithfulness to Christ in a variety of ways. And these ways are that she's a good mother, a godly mother, raises her children in a godly way. She shows hospitality. That is directly applicable to us today because we can show hospitality. But Paul doesn't specify how. There's a variety of ways to show hospitality. Washing the feet of the saints, humble and sacrificial service, care for the afflicted. She's compassionate, understanding, and takes care of other people. And she devotes herself to every good work because she understands the importance of everything she does being Christ-centered. And if any widow fulfills these three qualifications, then she can be enrolled in the list of widows who should receive a fuller degree of care from the church because then the church knows that their efforts and their time and their resources are being wisely spent on women who will glorify God with those very things that the church invests in them. There is this, this text. Is, if there's any, any way in which you sense that this text is not compassionate towards certain people, you've got to understand, Paul's not teaching us to be not compassionate to people who don't meet your standards. That's not what's happening. I shared this last week. Jesus stood out in front of the crowds, and what did he see? Nothing but wicked, sinful people who don't know God. And what did he have for them? Compassion. So this isn't telling us not to be compassionate. It's creating guidelines for church ministries to ensure that the church's ministry, resources, time, energy, and you know, finances, everything, all of it is being used in a way that that investment will return glory to God and sanctify the church. And on top of that, this filtration system ensures that certain widows don't make it into the enrollment to protect the church from sin. Like we see in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. You let in one ungodly widow and she could create disaster in the church. And we're going to see what kind of disaster that would look like, what that kind of disaster that would be. So if the first qualification is that she must be at least 60 years of age, then the question is, What about the younger widows? Paul answers that for us and explains his answer in verses 11 through 15. He says, But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bearing children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. 
for some have already strayed after Satan. So first, Paul clarifies that the widows under 60 years of age cannot be enrolled. And then in verse 11, he explains why. So, and he says the reason why is, For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for abandoning, uh, for having abandoned their former faith. And then he goes on to say what kind of things they'll do, which is them being idle and gossips and busybodies. And, 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 and this idea of going from house to house, that, that means they're intentional about it. They're feeding off of this sinful wickedness. And, and, and Paul is warning the church that this is what happens with younger widows. And this is why they don't get to be enrolled. And so Paul has kind of an answer for this. And it's this filtration system, this enrollment that has requirements and qualifications that ensures that the right people are put in the right place. So right now we're talking about ungodly younger widows. And what we're going to have to address in a second is godly younger widows. But first, the ungodly. In verse 14, Paul is going to say that he would rather the younger widows marry. But right now, in verse 11, he says that they should not marry. So it's kind of, it feels like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He's saying that the, the younger widows will marry, and he's saying that, that it's evil if they marry, that they should not marry. And then in verse 11, that he desires that they marry. Or I'm sorry, in verse 14, he desires that they marry. So the problem is not that the widows are remarrying. It is that they are first, verse 11, drawn away from Christ by their passions, meaning they return to their, Paul's seen this happen. So they return, they're young widows, they just lost their husband. They don't know what to do with their life. They have the church, but they don't depend on the church, which is why they've got this enrollment. They prove their faithlessness by returning to their pagan and ungodly former ways. And then what they do is they go and they seek out a husband from the world, an ungodly husband, a pagan husband, which is what God has been telling Israel for thousands of years. When you go into the land of Canaan, wipe out every nation there because I want you to be consecrated, separated, different, and holy, not like the other nations. And if you don't, you're going to end up intermarrying with these other people and mixing my people. And I don't want you doing that because I've set you aside, Israel, for a very specific thing. And then the fulfillment of that reality becomes more true in the church, where we become the, the, the consecrated, sanctified, set-apart people of God in Christ. And so we see that concept of marriage and intermarrying between believers and unbelievers as this um, way in which God's people are, get, get infected with sin. And this is why in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, meaning you should not get into uh, romantic relationships as a believer with an unbeliever. And that's what Paul is saying here is that's what these women are doing. They're drawn away from Christ by their passions and they're pursuing relationships and husbands from the world instead of doing what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.39, which says that widows can only remarry other believers. And this interpretation is further supported by what Paul says in verse 12. 
that they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So he's saying these aren't believers. These are women who are younger widows that will eventually reveal that they aren't really following Christ. So careful that you don't just throw them into the enrollment list and then reveal you poured all your time and energy into these women who are only going to bring an infectious sin into the church or a little bit of leaven that infects the whole group. So the filtration system keeps these, these widows who have abandoned their former faith and drawn away from Christ by their passions and now pursuing husbands from the world. It keeps the church from being ruined by that sin. And again, we see Paul, this underlying principle that Paul is teaching, this fundamental truth that what he really is looking for here is purity in the church revealed in the, in the church's desire and follow through on maintaining these gospel truths. Additionally, these younger widows must not be enrolled because they lack wisdom that comes from years of faithfully living for Christ. In verse 13, Paul says, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. This is further evidence of what happens to a woman who has not had the years to prove her faithfulness to Christ and and, and years to practice godliness and faithfulness to Christ and, and reveals in her younger years the true condition of her heart when her husband dies, that she has not been transformed by the gospel and yet claims the name of Christ as her savior, yet scurries around town, gossiping in other people's homes. And what that means is like behind closed doors, right? Keeping secrets and creating dissension and division and wickedness. And therefore, do not enroll these women until they reach the age of 60 so that they have had time to prove their faithfulness to Christ. Now, Paul has a solution for those younger widows who are godly widows, and what are they going to do? And, and so there's an answer, and we'll get to that. But obviously, Paul has seen this happen before, where these widows create havoc in the church. Because he says in verse 15, some have already strayed after Satan. He's saying, I've already seen this happen. I've watched it happen. That's why I'm giving you these rules. That's why I'm giving you these requirements and qualifications to ensure that this doesn't happen again. We have to keep the young widows in check and the older widows in check. We keep the older widows in check by enrolling them in the widows list so we can care for them. We keep the younger widows in check by having this filtration system that determines what widows are really or truly widows, is the phrase Paul uses, truly widows and those that are not. And he'll talk about what, what about the widows who make it through the filtration system and are younger than 60 years old. At the core of this refusal to enroll younger widows is not at all Paul's concern for the church to hoard or keep its resources. That's not on his mind at all. Nothing in this context communicates that at all. But there is, there is a concept here of uh, Using your resources, whether that's finances or time or energy or service or whatever, using them in a wise way, which we talked about a little bit last week. But rather, what Paul is is talking about is the same principle that he's been teaching throughout this letter, which is the holiness and the purity of the church. To prevent these young widows who are more prone to pursue the world, Paul is protecting the church from their evil and wicked ways that will infect the church with the impurity of their sinful wickedness. I mean, he's not saying like, don't let any widows in. They're all wicked. He's saying there are some who are. And so you need to enforce these rules 
so we can weed out those who are and are not. So the enrollment is a filtration system that becomes a proving ground for genuine faith while also protecting the church from being infected by sin and harming the image of the gospel to the world. So, a legitimate question now to ask is, what about the younger widows who are truly faithful to Christ? Well, if they are truly faithful, then they will have no problem following the church's qualifications for enrollment. And they will continue to endure faithfully as they wait for their time to enroll and receive some care from the church. And in the meantime, while they faithfully endure, they can work and they can make their own provisions with minimal help from the church. And they have an option that is awesome. Verse 14, they should marry, have children, and manage their household. Basically, he's saying these young widows who are truly faithful to Christ should pursue being a godly woman by being a godly wife and a godly mother with a second husband who is a genuine believer. Why? Verse 14. So to give the adversary no occasion for slander, meaning by her getting married to a godly man, she protects herself from the common sins of a young single woman and thus protects the church from the impurities that she could get wrapped up into that would harm the body of Christ. And would convey a lack of purity, which is the opposite of what God desires for the church. And this protects her from Satan's evil schemes to manipulate younger women with the passions of the flesh by submitting themselves not to their flesh, but to their new husband, who will be Christ to them, thus ensuring her continued faithfulness. This is God's plan from creation. As he created men and women for unity in marriage, so to reveal the unity we share in Christ and the unity God shares within himself in three persons. Now in verse 16, Paul turns his attention to those who are not widows as a means to care for widows. And he says, verse 16, If any believing woman has relatives who are widowed, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows or truly widows, as he says earlier. So women in the church are supposed to care for their own family's widows. And the reason Paul specifically clarifies that it is the believing women. Number one, they got to be believers because how can you enforce biblical mandates on a person who's not a believer. So the first qualification is they are a believer. Second qualification is they are a woman, a believing woman. Paul is clarifying that believing women should care for their widows. And that's because that is a role more suitable for women. That doesn't mean that men can't be involved in caring for widows. But as Paul just made clear, these widows have, especially younger ones, sinful passions lying underneath the surface. And if a man is their primary caretaker, that may lead to acts of sin between them. So this is about ensuring the purity of the church by having women care for women instead of men caring for women who are not their wives. Additionally, women were made different than men, right? I mean, anybody who's married understands that we are not the same. You know, and I don't, really care much about this whole gender dysphoria thing going on in our culture right now. But when I hear, you know, women trying to be men and men trying to be women, and then, you know, like that, 
It's like, forget the biblical reality of how distorted that is. That just, on a, on a practical human level, that just doesn't make sense at all. If you've ever known anyone from the opposite sex, you know that we are nothing like you. Men are not like women. Women are not like men. We are incredibly different. Not only physically, but I mean like emotionally, mentally, even spiritually. There's a huge difference between us. The natural character and disposition of women that God created in women is their need and desire to care. And one of the ways that that care shows up, that God has ordained for women to express that care, is to care for those women to care for their family. Hence, Paul commanding, Paul's command for believing women to care for their family's widows. Because it is more natural, according to God's created order, that women care for the widows. My wife, um, when she, she will like, you know, clean the house and do the laundry and like make like yesterday she made, she was in the kitchen for like 10 hours and made like two weeks worth of food. She's like, I got 10 pounds of hamburger in the fridge. I made this. I made that. I did. This. You know, and she's like, you guys, we got all these meals set up for the week. And when she does these things, what she's doing, she's not motivated by the task so much as she's motivated by her love for well, she lives with four boys, okay? Four boys in her home. She's taking care of four guys. That's a lot of food she's got to make. That's a lot of mess. That's a lot of cleanup, okay? And, and, and when she does it, she's often said throughout our, whatever, 17, I shouldn't say the number when I can't think of it, years of marriage, <laughs> 17 years of marriage that, that she says over and over again, it makes me feel so good to take care of you guys. Like, and when she says it, I'm like, duh, of course it feels good to take care of us. Like, it's what you were created to do. It's the same feeling I have when I provide for you. That's what I was created to do. Men were created to provide. Women were created to care, to be caretakers. So, of course, when my believing wife who loves the Lord and has the Holy Spirit in her does what God created her to do, it satisfies her. It feels good. And that's why when I do the thing that God created me to do, it satisfies me. It feels, I feel, I feel, it feels good to take care of my wife, to take care of my sons, to provide for my family. It feels good to my wife to take care of us, to serve us, to tend to our needs. And as much as she might look at the house and go, oh, I like when the house is clean. That's not her primary motivation. Her primary motivation is to care for us. And that makes sense because that's what women were created to do. And that is a glorious role that brings God honor and satisfies the family and creates healthy family environments when everyone's fulfilling their role. And we see this side of womanhood all throughout Scripture, such as 1 Thessalonians 2.7, when Paul says... We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That kind of gentleness and care is a natural state of womanhood that God graciously gives to the family. And so what Paul's revealing there is, and he's talking about something else. Paul's talking about himself and how he's dealing with the church. But he's using a foundational truth that he believes is absolute. 
He's comparing the way he's caring for the church to the way a mother cares for her children. And what he's revealing is that women are naturally caring. That's what they were created to do. And in Titus 2, 3 through 5, Paul takes those, this natural state of the woman and, and, and applies the natural caring nature of a woman to their role in the family. And he says this in Titus 2. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Again, see the reason for this kind of womanhood. It is so that the word of God may not be reviled, meaning what is at stake in godly womanhood is the purity of the gospel revealed and the holiness of the church. That's the underlying principle that Paul has been getting at this whole time. This filtration system serves a, a much bigger and important purpose. The same reason Paul demands doctrinal clarity is to preserve the purity of the church. The reason Paul demands in chapter 2, male and female roles, male and female roles appropriately applied in the church is to ensure the purity of the church. The reason Paul has qualifications for elders and deacons to preserve the purity of the church. And again here, why a clarification of filtration for widows? To preserve the purity of the church. And so... Within that, Paul is directing the church and, and, oper- and creating or, or, or establishing this filtration system in a way that ensures that the believing widows behave according to the way God created women to be. So they can fill roles they were created to fill. That not only protects them from sin, it protects the church from sin. And it not only satisfies them, it glorifies God. Not only does this protect the church from sin, it protects the church from wasting its time and resources and ministry on those widows who will not return their investment as God's glory and the further sanctification of the church. As Paul states at the end of verse 16, he says, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. Meaning, let the families take responsibility for their widows so that the church isn't overwhelmed by the ministry to widows and thus ineffective in its greater mission to spread the gospel and sanctify the believers. Because if the church is spending all of its time bringing in every single widow and just saying, you know what, it doesn't matter, you're a widow, I don't care if you're a believer or not, I don't care if you're faithful to your husband or not, I don't care about any of the qualifications, it doesn't matter, Jesus told us to love you, we're going to love you no matter what, there's no rules to love, love has no rules, love has a ton of rules, tons of rules in this book. We don't get to just throw love around. Rob uh, Bell is a false teacher. He writes books. He's kind of well-known. You know, um, has a big church. And I don't know if he's still at that church or if he quit that church. He's just writing books now or whatever. He wrote a book called Love Wins. And the whole book is about how love is all that matters. And it's just love, 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 love. And all he does in that book is ask a series of rhetorical questions that he never answers. And every single one of those rhetorical questions imply clearly some sort of false doctrine. So I look at a guy like that and I go, no, love is not what this book is about. 
Not, um, not the Bible, but his book. Um, love is not what his book. He says the book is about how love wins. But what he describes is not biblical love. Because biblical love has boundaries and requirements and guidelines and clarification. This, how we treat widows, is love. So we can't just say, any widow, doesn't matter, come on in. We're the church, we're supposed to love. If we're supposed to love our enemies, we're certainly are supposed to love widows whether they're a believer or not. And Paul isn't saying, don't love them. He's saying, the enrollment list for who gets what care has to be specific because it's not okay for the church to just open its doors and say, every wicked person who claims the name of Christ but is proven to not be like Christ through their behavior, widows included, come on in. That's not going to work. And, and you've got to realize that the Bible is very clear that there is a difference between an unbeliever who does not confess to know Christ and an unbeliever who confesses to know Christ. Scripture handles those two people very differently. And the way we treat an unbeliever who does not claim to be a believer is far more open, I'll use that word, far more open and, and I'd even say more inviting than, than, than the way the church is supposed to treat a, an unbeliever who says they're a Christian. And so we really have to understand that love is motivating this. And this isn't unloving to have this filtration system because what it does is it protects the church from the very thing Paul talks about in a variety of different contexts, but several times in scripture, which is this idea that you should not, as the church, associate with unbelievers who claim the name of Christ. And this filtration system helps us do that. Because it would be very easy if we didn't have these requirements for the church to go, my heart breaks for you. You're a widow. You just lost your husband. You have no way to take care of yourself. Well, we're the church and we're supposed to love. So come on in. And what we're doing is we're inviting Satan. in. I'm not saying she's Satan, but we're inviting Satan's schemes. in. we're inviting an unbeliever who says they're a believer, but is not into the church to infect the church with with the leaven of sin which will lead to 1 Corinthians 5 church discipline where we're going to have to remove that person if they're not sanctified or if they don't prove to genuinely be a believer. So this filtration system is so essential. And it teaches us this underlying reality that we don't just get to throw love out without any consideration for how Scripture tells us how to love. Too many Christians just go, just think that we should love instead of, how we should love. And how we should love needs to stay within the parameters of God's word. So, what is the application for all this for the church today? Well, if we have widows, then now we have clarity on how to navigate our ministry to them. So that's the first and most obvious application. However, underneath that obvious application is the fundamental truth that Paul's been enforcing all throughout this letter, which is that The church operates and functions in a way that preserves the purity of the gospel and the holiness of the church. Paul's primary motivation isn't that widows are cared for. Paul's primary motivation is that widows are cared for in a way that keeps the church from sin, keeps the widows from sin, and protects the image of God in Christ by ensuring holiness in the body for the world to see 
and keeps the body of Christ from slowly slithering into a slippery slope of sin. Say that five times fast. (laughs) So again, at the heartbeat of this letter is the preservation of purity in Christ for the sake of our continued growth into maturity and holiness in Christ. This is not about shunning particular women. This is about ensuring godly faithful women are following godly faithful mandates so that the church can be holy. So as an operating principle, we as a church are always guided by this concept that whatever we do, we must do for the glory of God according to God's word, regardless of how well it is or is not received by others or even by the church, to ensure that the word of God is obeyed and we grow in Christ to the magnification of his glory and the satisfaction of our souls in him. Let's pray. Father, it is, it's hard sometimes to look at your word and to experience this reality we call life and to do hard things that don't make sense to us and to do hard things that we may not want to do, yet we believe you are telling us to do them. And so we do them because you tell us to. And they don't make sense in the moment, and they hurt at the time, but they will produce the fruit of righteousness for the growth of your kingdom and for our satisfaction in Christ. And so we do these hard things against our own will, attempting to submit our will to yours. If we can't do that, then what's the point? So we love you, God, and we ask that you would Continue the transforming work of sanctification in this body. And we lift up Christian to you. And we pray that you would fill him with your spirit. When Jesus left this earth, Ephesians 4 said he gave gifts to men. Before he left this earth, he promised the apostles to give the spirit. And then he says, I give gifts to men. And then he gave us you. He gave us himself in the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus' best gift to us is the Holy Spirit, then the best gift we can give to Christian is to pray that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. I pray that not only for him, but for all of us, God. Fill us, sanctify us, satisfy us in Christ, that you may be most glorified in our lives. I pray this in the only name that has all power and glory, the name of Jesus, amen.